Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Connor Guerra. No will today. He had some work responsibilities in the office for his full-time job, so I will be flying solo for the first part of this. I will be joined in a bit by Ben Portnoy from Sports Business Journal. We talk about future of the ACC, what unions mean in a variety of senses, I guess. The playoff contract with ESPN, which The Athletic reported on after, of course. They reported on it after the um a- after that that discussion so what we talked about in the interview you're going to hear that number 1.3 billion thrown around that's ends up being what the contract uh is for six years 1.3 billion dollars a year that's billion with a b that is the the terms of this new playoff contract that'll go into effect in a couple of years more than double the 600 to a million dollar per year deal that the current 12-year contract uh, stipulates. So yeah, uh, just note that for the interview with Ben, but a lot of great stuff that we dug into uh, with that. And then we have a Jersey contest spinoff of sorts. We're going to get a little bit of user interaction. That's what we're going to do with with the Jersey contest as soon as we kind of wrap up what Will and I are doing. And I'll, I'll kind of outline what exactly that's going to look like. And we have a, a story, a story that I'm going to share uh, from the first sort of jersey contest uh user uh tail whatever you want to call it. i don't have a name for it yet don't ask me for a name we're, we're gonna have a name for it uh at some point but I'll, I'll kind of outline what exactly we're looking for but first talked about this enough figured it was probably time to be able to bring it up but percentage of returning production the great metric that bill Connolly puts out every off season twice every off season it is out been kind of waiting to talk about this I love percentage of returning production. If you listen to the show, you know that. I'm not breaking any news. Bill Connolly does this, uh, like, what, February and August, usually, of every single offseason. And I think he's been doing it for six or seven years, at least when he was back with SB Nation. Now, of course, he's with ESPN. But percentage of returning production is great because I feel like it is the best when it comes to projecting progression versus regression are you going to improve or are you going to get worse simple as that what i like is that it has positional value with it and we know in this sport you can't tell me that a starting safety or maybe like a nickel safety who started eight games is the same as returning a starting quarterback you kind of twist some of those oh this guy started x amount of games and this guy started this amount of games no this is about what did you do what did you contribute and it's kind of a you know it's it's one of those models that I I can't sit here and pretend like I have the exact formula for, but Bill has had to tweak things over the years. I know with the portal, the teams that are transfer heavy, how much do you weigh that, what they did at previous stops. And obviously these numbers can change with the post-spring moves, injuries, all those different things. But it basically just lets you know, hey, this is a really good metric to try and figure out the expectation should your team be better should your team be worse than it was the previous year and look you can be elite if you are near the bottom of percentage of returning production and at the same time you can still be basura if you're near the top of percentage of returning production but it sets expectation and that's what i like about it last year i referenced how dumb i felt really for the majority of the year that mizzou had when I decided to overlook the fact that when those updated rankings came out in August and Mizzou was sitting there number two in percentage of returning production, number two in the country, and I wasn't willing to pull the trigger and say that they were going to actually get better. 
Number one on that, by the way, in the updated rankings was Kansas, who went from six wins to nine wins and very much lived up to to that and, and looks like a more experienced team, even dealt with the midseason quarterback injury and still got better. Florida State was number three in those updated rankings. Michigan, of course, was number four, which fueled a lot of the preseason conversation about them winning the national championship, which they obviously went on to do just that. All four of those teams in the top four, they all improved by multiple games. Okay, It's not a catch-all. Obviously, you can find teams beyond that that, that do not necessarily get better, but I do think it does a really, really good job of being able to project that. So if you haven't seen this, maybe you don't have ESPN Plus, you haven't seen it aggregated elsewhere, here is where each SEC team ranks among the 134 FBS teams in percentage of returning production. Texas A&M is number 18 in the country. Texas is at number 25. Mizzou is at 31. Florida at 32. Georgia, 47. Auburn, 50. South Carolina, 59. LSU is 60. Oklahoma, 67. Ole Miss, 68. Vandy, is at 76, Tennessee 94, Kentucky 102, Arkansas 109, Alabama 115, and Mississippi State pulling up rear at number 122. So I have a lot of takeaways, a lot of takeaways from this. And uh, it's something that we're going to reference a lot throughout the offseason. So if ever you're like, ah, I don't really remember what it exactly that is or what exactly that means or why that's significant, just bookmark this episode and you can come back to it. But for now, here's what I think it means for some of these specific SEC teams. The the two year one coaches that we have in the SEC, well, I guess three, because we're including Alabama, we should. Totally opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Very wild to see that it played out this way. And I guess Alabama is in a little bit of a different category because of the timing of it. But in the more traditional uh, coach leaves, coach comes in, coach fired, coach is hired, that sort of normal cycle of late November, early December, the the two teams on the opposite ends of the spectrum in the SEC are AM, who's first in the SEC and 18th overall, and Mississippi State, who was last in the SEC and number 122 overall. By the way, I listened back to the last episode and I kept saying, or not the last episode, when was this? This was like a couple of weeks ago. I kept saying that Mississippi State was last in the country in percentage of returning production. And I meant last in the SEC. Again, only 122nd nationally. I'm an idiot. I bet some might have rolled their eyes when they heard Billy Lucci say that Elko did such a great job of keeping the roster intact because we know about the splashy portal losses that they had with Walter Nolan, with Evan Stewart. But this this number, this metric is a reminder of that. And Billy knew what he was talking about when he said that. It helps that Michael, Mike, Mike Elko was super active in the portal. And the combination of those two things, of keeping that roster relatively intact and being able to be active in the portal is why A&M is so high, even with those aforementioned losses. Obviously, you lose somebody like Edron Cooper to the draft as well, and that is significant. When A&M, though, has like, I don't know, this, this maybe this will come back to bite me. Is AM going to have more than two or three guys drafted? No, I, I don't think that'll be the case. Maybe AM is going to have two guys drafted, and that number why AM has such a high percentage of returning production that number will make a little bit more sense. Vegas has the over under for AM regular season wins at seven and a half, which I think if you just look at it on the surface, you'd be like, wait a minute, this is a seven win team who had a gutted roster in the bowl game. I mean, a gutted roster at 1.2 healthy scholarship receivers playing in that game against Oklahoma state. 
and you go, wait a minute, seven and a half. That's just Vegas is just setting the bar too high for AM. Nope. It's because that favors that sort of improvement. And I talked about it a lot last year about how, you know, before those August rankings came out, the updated rankings came out, AM was first in the SEC. I think they were eighth nationally in percentage of returning production. I said, AM should be the most improved team in the SEC. And look, they should have been more improved. They still improve by multiple games. I realize when you go five and seven the previous year, that's not saying as much, but they still did improve by multiple games and it helped that they had all of that production back. And maybe that over under is also kind of taking into account the fact that Mike Elko went into Duke, like Duke, the the place with the basketball team. And, And obviously he had a nine win season in year one, albeit in the ACC still. But that's why I don't think the conversation with A&M is about making a bowl game, nor do I think is it about whether or not A&M has playoff upside. I don't think that's fair. I think it's somewhere in between. Mississippi State, being at number 122 in the country is brutal. That is not a place that ideally Jeff Levy is at in these updated rankings in August. I actually went through all the year one coaches and I did this before the Chip Kelly thing happened at UCLA. I went through all of the year one coaches and I think Levy has the biggest uphill climb of any of them in year one. And I know there, there are some, some daunting situations long-term. I think the, the, the situation that Kalen DeBoer is in at Alabama is obviously really daunting long-term to replace the greatest coach in the history of college football. But think about this in the last two seasons, Mississippi State has had 40 players with remaining eligibility leave for the transfer portal. That's a lot, man. That is a ton. They're undergoing another offensive scheme change after they averaged, wait for it, 12.6 points per game against conference foes. That was second worst in America. They were really, really bad on offense against SEC teams. That much we know, and they were – just a disaster kind of before and after the Will Rogers, Woody Marks injuries. I think Levy replacing a one and done coach in Zach Arnett, who tried to build his type of roster is super tough for that offensive transition that they should be undergoing this year. But I'm looking at that defense going, Ooh, that, that unit might be even worse. It, it's, it could be rough. They're third worst in the country in percentage of returning defensive production after you lose guy like Bookie Watson, you lose a guy like Jet Johnson, who was in the SEC for seemingly 15 years. I'm pretty sure Sylvester Croom recruited that guy. Uh, they, Those guys were the anchors of that defense last year. And if you took them off of that defense, they would be just an absolute train wreck. And while I do think they addressed some of those areas in the portal already, Stone Blanton coming from South Carolina, that's going to help. Remember that schedule for Mississippi State and why this is such an uphill battle and why this is different than stepping into like what Bill O'Brien stepped into at Boston College and having the ACC schedule. Mississippi State has five games against SEC teams who won at least nine games last year, four of which are going to be away from home. You've got seven teams on that schedule who are top 35 in the country in scoring offense. That includes an 11-win Toledo squad in week three. It's brutal. It is brutal. Hope that Coleman Hutzler, the new DC, is up for that task because, woof, that is uh, that is really, really daunting. I don't like 
to throw out the whole year zero thing, even as someone that repeatedly says, I don't judge year one coaches on this show. But if there's a case for a year zero in the SEC, I think Jeff Levy's looking at it. Another takeaway, Texas being that high, 25th on that list of returning production. That might surprise some. It's easy to look at all the turnover that Texas had at the two biggest strengths of that team for this breakthrough season, where in Texas looks like a team returning, not fully back, but returning. And you can look at those things and assume that Texas is going to regress in year one in the SEC. And we know that they have the Michigan matchup on the road uh, early in the season as well. But they have to replace their top five pass catchers a lot. That's a lot from a Steve Sarkeesian offense. Plus, you've got to replace Sweat and Murphy from that D-line. Two, line, two guys that we talked about a lot. And that's not even including the fact that they lost Bo Davis, obviously, to LSU. But four guys back on that offensive line with Quinn Ewers returning as well. They're set up. They're set up very, very well. You also have to look at the way that they attacked with the the strengths that they lost and how those those areas were addressed in the portal. Silas Bolden, over 800 scrimmage yards as a receiver at Oregon State last year in the Jonathan Smith offense. He was one of the go-to targets for DJ Uyunglele. Matthew Golden, 400 receiving yard guy, six touchdowns, eh, kind of underwhelming at Houston. And then you realize, all right, the guy missed half of the year. He is projecting to be one of the go-to guys in that offense. Isaiah Bond, ever heard of him? 668 scrimmage yards, pretty notable play in the Iron Bowl last year. On the defensive line, they added Trey Moore. This is a guy that is going to be 100% off the radar for SEC fans. I don't expect him to come in and have all SEC love because if you haven't done it in the SEC, have you really done it? But this is a guy coming in from UTSA who had 14 sacks last year. This guy is going to be disruptive on that Texas defensive line. I have no doubt about it. Texas also benefited from not really having a lot of those significant portal losses. Their biggest portal loss, Malik Murphy. Malik Murphy, great things. Give that kid all the respect in the world. He used that opportunity as a backup quarterback to two of the highest-rated quarterback recruits ever, sandwiched in between those guys, Quinn Ewers, Arch Manning, and parlayed that into a Power 5 starting opportunity. But at the same time, if that's your biggest loss and you know that the guy behind him is Arch Manning, you're, you're in good shape. You're in good shape, and that's exactly what Texas is. That is why, in my opinion, Texas has legitimate national title buzz in ways that it has not in the last 15 years. I thought Ole Miss would be much higher. I thought Ole Miss would be much, much higher, and instead they are way, way middle of the pack, like 68th in the country. It's hard to get more mid in percentage of returning production than where Ole Miss is at. I'll save everyone the rants about, you know, how much I believe in not only the portal guys that they added, but, you know, the return of Dart, Priestcorn, Harris, Watkins, Pegues, Ivy, et cetera. Like they've got dudes on dudes on dudes. I'm not saying that they would win a dude off against everybody in the SEC, but they'd win a dude off against a whole lot of teams. I probably overlooked some things by assuming that they'd be higher in percentage of returning production. Ole Miss lost a lot of talent in the portal. They did. They lost 16 guys, including, obviously, Quinshawn Judkins. Ever heard of him? They're 94th in the country in percentage of returning defensive production. That's probably more so where the questions are. And they loaded up in the portal on some core four guys in the secondary, but not a ton of every down players. And I don't know how much of the, the fact that they were 94th in 
defensive production returning. I, I don't know how much of that is because maybe the the formula hasn't quite accounted for the portal guys just yet. And maybe because they're going to have so many portal guys starting on defense, it doesn't really favor them as much. I still didn't think that they would be that low. But again, this is about improvement versus regression. Ole Miss isn't destined for improvement. Uh, let me say that again. <laughs> let me say that again. Because if you've listened to this show over the course of the last couple of months, you're like, Connor, you're just <laughs> totally contradicting everything you've been saying. Ole Miss isn't destined for major improvement, but we're having different conversations because the 12 team playoff exists and because the schedule is so much more favorable, not having Bama on that schedule, which has obviously been the roadblock to Ole Miss having November relevance in an SEC championship type race. So I think that's something to remember as well. Even if Ole Miss just repeats as a 10 win team, and if they're 10 and two in the regular season, on the outside looking in of the SEC championship, they should still be set up with the ability to make it into the 12 team playoff. And that's how it changes the conversation of, of what we're, we're talking about with this team. Florida is where I thought it would be, but it's hard to feel like it's going to be that significant. It sounds like I'm being a hater because Florida is number 32 overall in percentage of returning production. They're 39th on offense. 41 on defense. That's pretty good. It's top third in the country in both of those areas. Year three, you, you hope that that's, that's the goal. That's, that's the vision. That's good. But you know, you, you lost 22 transfers, 12 of which were for core four programs. I'm really trying to make core four work guys. Like be with me on this one. I know it sounds weird to, to hear me not say power five, but just be with me on core four. Be a core four type person, a core four enthusiast. If you're nothing else, be a core four enthusiast. So we know that they lost a lot of those guys in the portal. That that includes, by the way, Florida's only all SEC defensive player the last three years, Prince Lee Manmielen. Uh, he's off to Ole Miss. The hope is that Joey Slackman can replace him after he dominated in the Ivy League. I'm not going to do the thing where I say, if your hope is that some guy from the Ivy League is going to be a key force on your defense. That means your defense is trash. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'll, I'll wait. I'll, I'll reserve judgment on that. It's just, it's hard to get too bullish about Florida when you know the schedule is what it is. And that's what this comes back to. You know, it'd be very different. I think to envision a world of eight, nine wins. If Florida had the schedule of Ole Miss or Mizzou, that's just not the case. And so it's tough for me to get too excited when you can be an improved team and actually still be sitting there at five or six wins. That is how difficult the schedule looks. Again, that can change now. The way that we talk about these schedules in February is much different than the way that we talk about them in the middle of October or at season's end, uh, late November, early December. So who knows? But if you're wondering why... I'm not really changing a whole lot of how I feel about Florida. It, it does come back to that. And you're going to get sick of hearing that Florida fans this offseason. The unit that I am most willing to overlook when it comes to percentage of returning production, Tennessee offense, Tennessee offense, only 107th in the country in percentage of returning offensive production because you lose the likes of Milton and Wright and Small and Mincy and Keaton and, and others. Basically, you're losing 
the majority of your production at every offensive position outside of receiver. So that's significant, but I don't care. I don't care. I, I still think that Tennessee should show significant improvement on the offensive side of the ball. A lot of that is Nico. Okay. It, it just is my faith that he, even if he experiences growing pains in the early going, I think he is going to allow you to have the full playbook of the Josh Heupel offense. And that's a beautiful thing when it's humming. I love the receiver room. I've talked a lot about that so far. I think they're the third best group of pass catchers in the SEC behind the likes of Mizzou and Ole Miss. Those are the only two in the SEC that I would put ahead of them as of right now, pre-spring window moves. But it's also my love for Dylan Sampson probably coming to an all-bang-the-drum team near you. And my my overall confidence is that Josh Heupel just doesn't do decent offenses. He doesn't. He does extraordinary offenses. He does high-powered downfield attack. We're going to you know, not necessarily care about time possession. We're going to do these things that that make defenses go, man, this is going to be a brutal 60 minutes. Now, that doesn't apply to everyone, and I'm sure Georgia fans listening to this are saying, it doesn't apply to us. You're right. That's fair. That's fair, but it applies to a whole lot of other teams, uh, including even Alabama, where Josh Heupel has obviously had some success, even though obviously they had the second half blown lead in that one. But I'm very willing to overlook the lack of returning production in that Tennessee offense, and I still feel like they are going to be one of the elite units, not just in the SEC, but in all of college football. Okay, something else that seems really obvious, but it, it needs to be said, I, I think. Bama's going wild in the spring portal. <laughs> they're, like, they're going wild. Kalen DeBoer is, is not shy about using the portal. And uh, they're going to, after looking up and realizing all the pieces that they have to replace, Bama being 115th in the country in percentage of returning production is different than it's been in years past. We know this. Usually, it is simply lose a bunch of guys to the draft, bring up the next group of five stars, and then just let them go. But we know that when you've got five stars that were set to be in year two who left the program during that 30-day window, the roster is just different. 30 outgoing transfers so far. It's 30, it's 33, depending on where you look. Uh, and depending on what date you want to go back to, I think it is. Only brought in six so far. Here's the crazy thing. 24 of those Bama transfers already have core four homes. 24. That's a lot. How much of that is just because you see the Bama jersey and you assume that, that guy is going to be able to play at Georgia Tech or going to be able to play at Syracuse? I don't mean to pick on the ACC. It's just kind of happening. But that is significant, in my opinion. If all these guys are ending up at FCS programs or – if they're going the JUCO route or something like that, or it's a group of five program, if they're all ended up at Tulsa, okay, we can have that conversation about how these guys weren't going to play anyways. But that feels like it's worth mentioning, and it definitely has shaped that number that we're talking about. When Bill Connolly does his updated numbers in August, I promise you, I promise you, Bama will be higher than 115th. Okay. And that's even if they do suffer a couple of these moves after finding out that Ryan Grubb is not going to be coming to Bama. I do think that Bama is going to improve and they will not be just sitting there at 115th in the country in percentage of returning production. Still waiting on the SEC transfer rule to change. I think that would open up things even more. 
whether it changes or not, Bama will be a very, very active player in the post-spring window. Only other thing, things have changed so much. This is how much they've changed. Georgia being 25th in the country in percentage of returning offensive production with Bobo and Beck coming back. It has me excited. Real excited. I've been trying to contain this excitement a little bit. And while there's part of me that's just like, Connor, pump the brakes. It's it's a post-Brock Bowers, post-Lad McConkey world. There there could be some struggles of, of who that that go-to guy is on a week-in, week-out basis. I know, I know. That's that's there. That's that's holding me back a little bit. But man, mm, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Now I'm not sure that George is going to be my pick to win a national championship, but I'm saying this right now. If Georgia isn't my pick, I promise that Bobo will not be the reason why. Okay? Bobo is no longer holding me back from picking Georgia to win a national championship like it was in 2023. I am fully converted. I am a believer, if you will. Trademark pending. Don't think we're going to get the trademark on that one. But I am a believer, and I do think Georgia being 25th in percentage of returning offensive production, knowing what Beck did down the stretch and how how much that guy just really kind of met those expectations, exceeded those expectations even, I think. Um, I, I think that is just so huge and will fuel so much of this national championship conversation with Georgia. All right, let's kick it to Ben Portnoy. Great insights with him talking about some of the financial issues that the sport is is just staring in the face right now, including what it means for the ACC and perhaps the pay-for-play era as a whole. So here's Ben. Now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is my guy, Ben Portnoy, formerly covering all things Mississippi State, South Carolina was after that, and now Sports Business Journal. But more important than all that, Ben, I think, and I'm like 98% sure of this, I was trying to dig back into my own personal archives. I think you were my first fellow IU grad that I have ever <laughs> had as a guest on this show. <laughs> that's exciting. I'm glad there's a, that's a, that's a milestone. I guess we got to circle this one. <laughs> I know. Like I was trying to think, I'm like, no, nah, I never had, I never had Brody on. Um, God, I was like going through, I'm like, no, no, I think you're, you were the very first. So just a couple of Yankees chopping it up, talking about big picture uh, college football things. Look, a lot to get to, a lot to get to. We're talking before we came on, there's just so much right now that is, that is, feels like moving pieces in this business. It's a very interesting time to talk about the, the the back end of it. I I'm kind of at a dead end whenever I talk about the ACC and whenever someone asks about the future, I always just kind of default to, well, the grant of rights is what it is. It's going to take unprecedented money to be able to get out of that deal before it ends in 2036, which not even Florida state so far, we know has been willing to pay. You just sat down with ACC commission, Jim Phillips. What's the sense that you got from him? about that just that whole looming cloud that hangs over the conference in this possible expiration date yeah i think talking to jim talking to other folks in the conference like the understanding is kind of what you said right like the grant of rights is what it is and i think you know most of your listeners probably have a pretty good sense of this stuff but like it, it, in so many words everyone signed a contract and said hey we're locked in for 20 years, basically, at that point, it was signed once in 20, I believe, 2014, and once in 20, and again in 2016. Uh, the new schools, uh, Stanford, Cal, and SMU have also signed it in the interim, or if they haven't, they're going to. Uh, and it basically says, hey, 
we don't necessarily own, you know, the media deal is separate, right? Like there's the deal with ESPN, but then there's also this grant of rights, two separate contracts that you sign that says, hey, the ACC owns your rights, your media rights, uh, in order for them to be able to sell it to ESPN. And those, so like the thing here is like Florida State could buy themselves out of the ACC. That's fine. But the ACC would still own their media rights. Those are two separate entities. And again, like to actually answer your question, I, I think people understand that like, there's just not really any way to figure this to get out of this or to streamline this. And I don't think, I mean, look like legally settlements can come and those things can happen. But I think that the understanding is again, kind of what you said is that it, it kind of is what it is. Everyone signed the contract and the belief, at least within the ACC and with commissioner Phillips and everyone else is that, you know, everyone's kind of locked in for, for the long haul, as far as they're concerned. In theory, it's great. If you're a fan of college football in its purest form in reality of a capitalist economy it's not great for for the acc and in this gap that we expect to kind of widen i was reading usa today story that ran about a year ago about athletics revenue and it's just wild to fathom that our alma mater indiana is ranked higher than any acc school in athletics revenue which for a, a school that has the, the the football stadium you know filter out by halftime that, that's just hard to, to process that they're making more money than than a florida state and the plan we know for the ACC is to do this unequal revenue sharing model, which, you know, in theory, postseason success should kind of be incentivized. And it's kind of interesting that they're they're taking that that sort of approach, or at least that's the mindset. But in actuality, it could feel like Texas with Longhorn Network, and it could create frustration with those members who maybe just have a rough decade in those big time sports. How could the ACC's model be different than what happened with the Big 12, which felt like the beginning of the end of that conference as we knew it with Texas and Oklahoma. Yeah, well, I think what you said and, and kind of references a really clever thing that the ACC is doing. I think that, look, the ACC has got a lot of issues and they got to figure out the Florida State thing. And I still have my doubts about how stable this league is long term. But I do think that to their credit, I think Jim Phillips has done a pretty good job of trying to at least figure out something within sort of the constraints that they're in. Right. Like, in so many words, you can't just tear up the grant of rights and you can't tear up the media deal <laughs> and move forward. And and I think that that's the tricky part, right? Like, it's funny. I was talking to uh, Pitt AD, Heather Like, for, for this story I was writing about Jim Phillips. And, and she said basically the same thing. Like, you know, what are we supposed to do? Just tear up the tear up the, the, the media deal and start over? Like, that's just not really a feasible thing. And, and she mentioned, like, to Jim's credit again he's gone with this sort of unequal revenue sharing idea The the ACC is kind of calling it the success initiative reportedly it's in the neighborhood of sort of 50 to $60 million, give or take um, that basically schools will be able to compete with for through men's and women's basketball and football. And then it'll sort of add this extra money on top of what schools will already get from the conference. So I think like, like that, for example, I think is a way to help bridge the gap. Now, when you're talking about a gap that is, you know, hundred million dollars a year, a couple of million dollars isn't really going to do too, too much, but I think it's at least an effort. And I think like, I think the other tricky part you get here is what, rev, what cuts of, of that sort of media rights money do Cal Stanford and SMU get, right? Like we've heard a lot about how SMU is not taking any money from the conference for, I think it's 10 years. Uh, Cal and Stanford are both expected to, I believe it's about 30% shares for at least the first few years. Um, and obviously it's sort of a sliding scale from there. But I think that, again, like when you add more more teams to the to the pie, everyone's getting a smaller slice. And so this success initiative is at least a way to kind of try and mitigate that. But like, again, there's not really any perfect solution here, because if you tear up the grant of rights and you tear up the media deal, 
you're starting from square one again, and you're probably looking at a bunch of schools leaving. And I think that like, again, it's sort of a rock and a hard place. And I think the, that if you're the ACC, you kind of just want to keep things as stable as you can for as long as you can. And I think the goal is to succeed in spite of that. I, I think if you're looking at this objectively, you can admit, look, there are, there are going to be factors that are standing in the way of long-term success that were not there 10 years ago. And it's just figuring out the best possible way to, to be able to, to, to break that down. And Jim, Jim Phelps is in a very interesting spot because there was a lot of expectation that he could have been the big 10 commissioner and he could have stepped into that role where look, being a big 10 commissioner is a very lucrative spot. And it's one of the most powerful people you could be in college sports. It's a regret that he didn't do that, that he didn't like kind of hold out <laughs> hope to take Jim Delaney's spot as a big 10 commissioner. Yeah. So like kind of buyer's remorse type thing. I, you know, look, like I think it's, it, it is funny. I think like you've got a league that I, I will say this. It's, it's a funny when you look across the commissioner room now these days, right? Like it, you look at Jim, who's a guy who's a longtime college sports guy, right? Uh, Greg Sankey falls in that same category, although he's been kind of on the conference office side for a long, long time. And then the flip side is you've got guys like Brett Yormark and Tony Petiti who come from totally outside college sports. You know, Petiti who comes from the TV side, uh, Yormark coming from the more entertainment side. Uh, and it's just a fascinating dynamic. And, I, you know, it's funny when I was reporting the story, I didn't even realize this until someone mentioned it to me that uh, Phillips is now the second longest tenured commissioner of the power conferences. And he's been there for three years. What? <laughs> which is which is completely crazy, right? Like, obviously, Greg Sankey's been at the SEC for going on yeah. 10 years, 12 years, whatever, 15 years, whatever it is now. Um, but yeah, Phillips is, is the second longest tenured power, I guess we can call it power five for now, uh, commissioner uh, outside of Sankey, which is just a, a kind of crazy dynamic. And again, like a lot of very different personalities there, too. Yeah, well, core four. That's what we're kind of transitioning to. That's what we're trying to make a, a thing um, in college sports. We'll, we'll see. We'll see if it works. But yeah, it, it is just a, a very strange situation that that he is in. And for all these commissioners that are going to have to navigate perhaps this new era of big revenue college football, because we see this Dartmouth basketball ruling where it, it feels like a breakthrough. Because obviously, the ability to establish a union is what will determine if we truly get pay for play, or at least what we feel like we can call pay for play and a variation of what NIL is, a more extreme version of what NIL has become. We know the NCAA has repeatedly refused to allow student athletes to be employees because obviously it would just be the end of amateur athletics, whatever that is anymore, as we know it. So why is the ruling that the National Labor Relations Board had in this Dartmouth case being treated differently than what we saw with King Coulter at Northwestern 10 years ago? Was it just strictly the fact that NIL exists or how much of it is based on the fact that this is media contracts and we can see the dollars and cents in ways that maybe we couldn't a decade ago? Yeah, I think it's a mix of things. I think one thing I would say is that the climate's just different, right? Like kind of like you said, NIL exists, this, this sort of bugaboo of not wanting to pay players and things like that. Certainly it still exists and there's a lot of boosters and longtime college athletics people who don't love it, but it is kind of what it is. And I think people have started to accept that largely, I would say like, you know, the vast majority of college administrators and athletics people accept the fact that like college athletes are going to get paid in some capacity. Um, I think that the other side too, is that, that this is a little bit of a different case. I think in that it's an Ivy league school, athletic scholarships are a little bit different. It, it don't really exist functionally um, in the Ivy league. It's a little bit of a different animal, but I would say that like, I think that when you look at this case and kind of what it means, 
you know, certainly unionization, I think, is a big deal. And I think now, like, what does that mean? Right. Basically, it allows players to sort of organize and, and sort of get themselves into a position where maybe they could collectively bargain. They have some representation at the table, whatever that might be. Like, there's a lot of sort of generalities that we can talk in, at least for the time being, because we don't really know. But I think the bigger thing is, is that, you know, I, I think that this has been heading this way for a long time, right? Like there's been so many court cases we talk about week to week. And honestly, the longer, the longer I'm around this, and you may feel the same way as I feel like I really should have gone to law school or something, because good Lord, there's always like another court case popping up. But um, I, I do think that the thing that's more interesting here is that, look, it's been headed this way for a long time. Now, is this the case that breaks the camel's back? I don't know that, but I do think it is another bullet point that adds to guys, this, this, this sort of farce of a amateur model that we've come to accept for a hundred years just doesn't really work. And I think that that's the thing that I think is really hard for a lot of folks in college athletics or, or sort of the, the last bastion that people want to hold out for a little bit. Right. Um, that, that, the sort of last piece of what the traditional NCAA was, and that's the employment piece, uh, is that that people don't want athletes to be employees. But the reality is, is and I've had this conversation with people in athletics and, and with administrators who don't love the idea, but like, think about it this way. If you take the NCAA model and put it in quite literally any other business setting, right? Like, and say, hey, we're going to make, let's use a number, $100 million a year. And we're going to, pay the executives and pay the mid-level executives and the people, the account managers are not going to make any money, but they're making all the sales calls and everything else. Like it doesn't make any sense, but it, because we've existed in this climate for a hundred years, that amateurism is a thing that we should protect. That's why we're in the problem. I say problem. That's why we're in the climate we're in right now. And I think it's why the NCA finds itself in this climate that we're in right now. Again, it's sort of like, when you take a step back and look at it, it's kind of one of these things where you throw up your hands and it's like, guys, what are we doing here? But it, it again, it goes against a hundred years of, of thinking otherwise. And I think that's the biggest thing that, that the, uh, that folks are fighting against versus like the actual sort of context of what's happening day to day, if that makes sense. It was always going to have to take some Ivy league origins for a union to, to kind of get off the ground. And, you know, as you said, like TBD, if this is truly the breakthrough, that gets everybody on board because obviously an Ivy League scholarship is is incentivized in, in a much different way than, oh, I'm a big time college football player. I have no intention whatsoever of graduating. And here's how that's going to look, because it's not like accepting a scholarship is necessarily saying that I'm going to follow this four year path to a degree and do all of these things. So there's a lot that goes into what that looks like and what it could be for what is you know a, a, a contract that is what these could be moving forward if unions happen and if they're able to be uh, agreed upon the, the contract that that i think will perhaps get the ball rolling with this in a unique way or at least will open up the conversation even more is this playoff contract espn reported that espn <laughs> which i love i absolutely love that uh <laughs> I'll leave that one alone. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll, I'll just. Yeah, I'm not going to dig into the back end of that. Uh, who's your source I'll leave on that? A bit there. <laughs> yeah, uh, but hearing ESPN, you know, like talk about how well they could have this 1.3 billion dollar contract for six years of the playoff. That would begin in 2026. If that happens, is that going to mean that part of the money is used for this pay for play to be able to? Fill these athlete contract scholarships, however we want to call them, 
is part of it going to be used for that and perhaps part of that contract used to finance a new governing body in the sport? Yeah, so I think it's totally conceivable. And I think you're right. Like things are moving in that direction. I think that folks on the college football playoff committee are trying to get that media rights deal done. It's, I think, you know, nearing a finish line. Now, what nearing a finish line actually means? Is it a month? Is it six months? We'll see. Is it a week? Who knows, right? But I, I will say that I think that what we will see is that I think the thing that I, I think that I'm not sure on and I'm not clear on and I think that I think a lot of people are trying to figure out is what happens in a post NCAA world or at least a post amateurism world. And I think you kind of mentioned it, right? Like, does this become does this deal help the college football playoff become more of a governance structure? I think that most people in college athletics will tell you they don't want that. The college football playoff will largely tell you they don't want that either, because I think that like the thing that gets not to say missed in this conversation, but I think that people forget sometimes in this conversation is like the NCAA does a lot of things that no one else wants to do. That's investigate. It's sort of this bureaucracy. And like, I know we make fun of the bureaucracy of it because like truly a lot of it can be really totally ridiculous. But at the same time, by that same measure, like the NCAA has a lot of this infrastructure in place that no one else wants to deal with. And, And I think that there is pieces of that that I think are necessary for basically every other sport in America outside of football. And, you know, I guess we could say men's and women's basketball to a lesser degree, but like, because of that, I think that if you're going to have a say breakaway league, right, let's call it whatever NFL light or or Nuco, right. New company, right. It's probably going to have to find some way to govern itself. Now, whether that falls under the college football playoff, it falls under some other commissioner or some, you know, grand czar of college football, whoever that is, like that may have to have its own governance structure just because I think the thing, what they're doing and the money that they're bringing in is so functionally different um, from everyone else. I, I think that that in itself could have its own governance structure. But I do think to, to your question about kind of governance and where that fits, like I do think the NCAA has to have some role moving forward with everything else, just because again, like so much of this stuff is so built in to to be able to handle some of these things that I think that a lot of people just don't really want to see it disappear because frankly, they don't want to deal with it. True. The, the governance part, like there is something to be said for the union contracts, taking care of a lot of that and taking care of a lot of that, that gray area, that murky territory that we're currently existing in where there's Mm -hmm. schools like Tennessee who are going to court over what the NCAA is telling them they, that they can and cannot do. And so the hope, I think, would be that some of that is taken care of through that system and that we're, we're in a different place with the need to govern and, and what what exactly that looks like on the back end. You talk about, like, a new league. for uh, yeah, No, go ahead. You had something to, to talk about. With I was going to say, like, to that point, like, I, I think that's the thing that is easy to – is sort of when you look at, say, hey, okay, there's a breakaway league, right? And I think that's – sort of overstating it, but basically acknowledging the fact that like football makes more money than everything else, you know, tenfold, right? It needs to be treated differently. If that happens and you say, hey, everyone's going to two-year contract, uh, things are collectively bargained and athletes get a salary based on whatever the market value is, right? Schools pay whatever kids they feel is right. Um, It goes through the schools or it goes through a a private equity firm that owns the, the team or the league or whatever, like, whoever's bankrolling this, right? Like there's a basically NFL style model to this that resolves most of the issues that we're seeing right now in college football. Now it takes a lot of steps to get there. And I think there's a lot of shift in like ideology, kind of like I mentioned earlier, but I do think that 
if you look at it and say, okay, you're gonna have two year contracts, you're gonna have a salary, you're gonna have uh, you know collective bargaining where a piece of this revenue, let's this new co that we kind of alluded to, pulls in ten billion dollars a year. Okay, for from its media deal, okay, some of that's gonna go to players in some capacity, whether it's you know twenty percent or fifty percent or whatever that number magic number becomes. All of that again kind of fixes some of the issues we see with the transfer portal with NIL or NIL being used as like the guise of NIL, but it's really just like paying a kid's salary. Again, like I think that a lot of those things make a big impact and can sort of help resolve a lot of these issues that we're seeing now that have sort of created this chaos. But again, like there's about 27 steps to get there. But I think that like once we're there, there's some stability and look, there's going to be people left out. And what's that magic number? Is it 35? Is it 50? Is it 60? Like, where does the line get drawn? I I think that like, in a perfect world, you're probably saying, Hey, the big 10 and the sec and you know, the upper echelon of the big 12 and the ACC are going to merge in some capacity. And there's going to be your super league in in some world or some way. But um, I, I do think that like, again, I'm I'm ranting a little bit, but like, again, this kind of all, if you get to that point and the steps there are going to be complicated, but it does help resolve a lot of the things you're seeing day to day in college football right now. I was going to ask you just that about the big 10 SEC <laughs> union. So that, that fed perfectly into it. Cause I think a lot of those cops were affected. It's like, yeah, I mean, you could in theory have this, this system wherein those things are, are so clearly outlined. And instead of all these different governing bodies, or really not so much governing bodies, but conferences working with separate interests. If it really was like that from the NFL model, I personally, as a fan who likes having some of those, you know, minor teams that are in the sport that can have the occasional one-off season. I love those types of seasons and wouldn't want to see that go away with, with a premier league type model, NFL type model, whatever you want to call it. But how realistic is that? Like how realistic is it? You know, to to hit all of those 27 steps to be able to get there. Should that be the expectation or should it be the, the fear? Like what's, what's the best way to assess that as a, an overall vision for, for potentially the future of the sport? I think it has to happen because the money's grown too big. I think that like, that's the reality here is that it's right. It's the sort of credo of like more money, more problems. And I think that's where college football is right now. Um, there's so much money in the sport that, and this isn't even to mention like title nine issues and things like that. I mean, that's a whole separate other conversation, but like, look, college football makes so much money hand over fist relative to everything else right now. And that's men's basketball, women's basketball, soccer, whatever, pick the sport. Right. Um, And I think because of that, again, you kind of have to treat it differently. And I think that to answer your question, as far as like what happens or is it realistic? Like I, I think it has to happen because I think that there's too much money involved there's a lot of money being left on the table. I think that most people that I've talked to sort of on the business side of this is like, if you're sick, like the way that things are happening and the way that, and the way that college football is structured now where you have separate conferences, having different media deals and things like that. If you consolidate and say, Hey, okay, these 50 schools are going to play high major college football. The, the business of it will tell you, or at least the market will tell you that that's worth a lot more and is a lot more lucrative than splitting this thing up and and sort of fracturing it the way it's been fractured. And I think that to that end, like you kind of have to move in the direction where you have some kind of professionalization. Now, 
that doesn't include like who invests in these teams. Is it private equity firms? Is it, you know, other whoever, right? Billionaires with lots of money that say, hey, they want to own Alabama football. Great. Like, again, like these are big, these are big questions that I think are not totally clear. And I think there's a lot of issues there that, that have to be unraveled and I think are not super simple. But again, like I, I just think like something has to happen. You have to move in that direction to be able to move forward. Cause I don't really think there's another path forward for college football. Otherwise, at least in my view. You wrote about uh, how one of the things that, that should be remembered for kind of the Saban legacy is just for the sport as a whole is just how much he changed spending with college football and not just spending on head coaches, but you know, assistant salary pools, analyst programs, recruiting, kind of everything in between the, the dollars that, that have been sort of like, just injected into college football suggests if you're not spending, you're not winning. What what was maybe the most startling number that you dug up that you can kind of correlate with, with the Saban era at Alabama? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that story was really cool because I think you see there's been so much written about Nick Saban. And I think his impact on the game is so far reaching beyond just guys he's hired and, and wins and losses. And I know that's a little cliche, but I do think like when you look at the numbers, like they're kind of staggering as far as what's changed in the time that he was the head coach at Alabama. And some of, look, some of that is a, a, the fact that media rights money has gotten crazy and it's flowed into the sport. And that's functionally what has changed the sport top to bottom. That said, look at the way that Alabama spent on, on recruiting, right? Like I think that the numbers that I looked at, if I remember right, you know, Alabama recruiting had basically doubled in spending as far from the time that he began his tenure to the end. Uh, what do you, they were spending on support staff was had gone from basically one million dollars a year to I think five or seven million dollars a year or whatever whatever the number was. But I, the point is is that those numbers have jumped so much, and I think it's sort of the peripheral spending, the the bigger staffs, all of those things have changed a lot. And now you throw in the the NIL piece of it, right? Like that's a whole other expense. That's basically you're saying, hey, we need boosters to bankroll whatever eight to twelve million dollars a year. To help us compete and keep guys every year, and I think uh, that's a whole other discussion of like, what is that? You know, is that sustainable? Which it's probably not. And I think again, that kind of ties into what we were saying about the sort of in between and this weird sort of purgatory that we're in right now. But um, again, I think that Nick Saban's impact is so so far reaching beyond just uh, you know the national championships and the wins and losses. Like the way that college football staffs are structured and the way that people spend money on on support staff and recruiting and things like that is is functionally comes from from the way that Nick Saban ran things at Alabama and elsewhere. Assuming that Saban isn't up for this at age 72, and we know that he's going to be a part of college game day ESPN moving forward. While I do think there would probably have to be like 27 things for this to, to happen with <laughs> commissioners of conferences, presidents, ADs, all being, being willing to step aside and relinquish power, which again, like TBD on that, but who would be your choice? for college football commissioner if those 27 things did happen? I mean, I think the thought is always, right, Greg Sankey is the most powerful guy in the sport right now. Now, whether he wants that, I don't know. And, and maybe it's someone who comes from outside. Is it, you know, Tony Petiti? Is it some combination of the two? Do you have sort of two heads of state here? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, if we're picking this tomorrow, I think Greg Sankey makes a lot of sense. But I think that you know, over time, these things change. And do people get to the point where they say, hey, I want out, <laughs> you know, kind of like Saban or whoever else, right? Like we've seen all these, you know, 
major, 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 you know, Hall of Fame coaches step away from the games on the basketball and the football side in recent years. And I think that like there's going to be people that are that way. And um, I, I think it'll be interesting. Like, I think, again, like the obvious choice would be Greg Sankey, just because I think he's spearheaded a lot of things that are involved with this now. As he kind of said the other day on on Fine Bomb, he doesn't have the 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 magic wand here. The you know I, I don't think Greg Sankey's like hiding the nuclear codes at SEC headquarters as far as how to fix all this. But I do think that that there's a lot coming from the SEC and and on that front that that have kind of moved these things forward. So uh, I'll be curious sort of how that fits into the strategic partnership with the Big Ten and kind of kind of what happens there because I do think that you know. A lot of people I talked to about it have said, like, look, we're not doing this to break away from the rest of college football. But I do think it's a chance for it's I think it's kind of one of those things where we're undervaluing and overvaluing that relationship at the same time. Like it's not nothing, but it's not quite as big as we're maybe making it to be, if that makes sense. I think it's somewhere in between. And I think that there's something interesting will come out of it. It's just a matter of sort of how long that takes and what that actually means. It's also something that has to have the respect of all those people and which, you know, I, th- I think Sankey does, but there would always be, if anything favored the SEC, it'd be like, oh, well, he's just doing this because, you know, he's doing this, this and this. And like, say what you want about like Roger Goodell, like we're watching the Super Bowl and and my wife is asking me, she's like, how is Roger Goodell like still commissioner? And I, I say like, because he works for the owners. And if the owners, if he's doing right by them, that's all that really matters at, at the end of this. And if he's looking out for their best interests, then he's in a position of power that won't be relinquished. But if you have people that are like, hey, Sankey is only looking out for the SEC, he's doing this, this, and this, then obviously it would come back to him and it would hurt his overall approval rating. I thought about Urban too, about somebody that like, as much as everybody like Urban's had a bad five years in, in you know, just headlines <laughs> in general, like I actually think he's kind of geared towards that. Maybe you need somebody that has dealt with the NIL hurdles from the coaching side or from an athletic director side and has seen that because that's going to be such a big part of that if that role ever exists. But Urban was the one that came to mind where I'm like, that's not the worst idea if he were to take on something like that. But just somebody like that. I, I, I would love to see it at some point, even though I'm not holding my breath on it. <laughs> yeah, I think like I lean toward the idea that it's probably someone who's more exe- geared toward like a C-suite executive than it is like a, a, a football coach. Right? And that's not to yeah. over under like value college football coaches by any stretch. But I think like, again, like honestly, we see it with the people who are getting hired as ADs these days, right? Like the people who are getting hired as ADs are more people who are like CPAs and, and people like that as opposed to, you know, former coaches or people who worked in, you know, marketing or in the communications office for a long time or whatever. Like, it's just like, I, I think it's such a functionally different job to be an athletic director these days. And I think like conference commissioners are, are certainly that as well. Ben, great stuff, man. We'll do it again soon. Always fun. Appreciate you, man. So I've been thinking about what the best way to kind of continue the the Jersey conversation would be to get some some listener interaction. And um, my guy Evan sent me an email a couple of weeks ago about uh, a jersey that had a very special place in his heart and a fun story that went with it. So I was thinking that we could do stuff like this and we could just pick from the best. If you have a story that is associated with a jersey, I want to hear about it. And I'm going to compile the best ones. I don't know how long, like we're gonna, if we're going to do that for a month or two months, kind of depends on how many emails we get, how many of these stories are are really good and worth sharing. Um, because I think jerseys have an interesting sentimental attachment for a whole lot of people. So if you have a jersey with a story, something that you want to share, just like how Will and I 
I'll chop it up at the end of each podcast and, and do so with our Jersey contest, but something that you feel like you would like to, to hear talked about on this show, here's what you don't, I want you to do. I want you to email me C O G A R A at SaturdayDownSouth.com. That's C O G A R A Cogera at SaturdayDownSouth.com. Send me an email with your Jersey story. I want to hear about it. Images are not a must, but they do help me like to be able to, to see what we're working with here. Um, and my guy, Evan did just that. So this is kind of the, the type of stuff that we're looking for. And Evan, it went a little long. I'll admit, if you want to keep your Jersey story a little bit shorter, that'd be perfectly fine. But Evan included some great details in here. So this is a story of Evan's NCAA Division One ice hockey game-worn autographed Northern Michigan jersey that his wife will not let him wear in public for a very good reason that we'll get to. So Evan says, I was a freshman at, at Northern Michigan in 2002. At the time, Northern Michigan was still a national power in college hockey. They had won the national championship in 1991. And before the creation of the Big Ten Hockey Conference, they still played the likes of Michigan, Michigan State, Notre Dame, et cetera, every year. This is also a major factor of how I became an Alabama football fan at a young age. Playing these schools in hockey and rooting against them in that sport didn't mesh with cheering for them in football. But thankfully, I had the influence of relatives in Alabama that gave me a way out of that conundrum. During home games, the university would raffle off game-worn jerseys from the previous season for the ridiculously low price of only $2. For the first few months of the season, I didn't bother buying a raffle ticket because jerseys they were raffling were, uh, weren't from current or well-known players. But then early in December, our current captain, a senior from Canada, had his jersey from the previous season when he was an alternate captain. So he had this jersey rattled up. So I decided to buy a ticket. I've never been a lottery player because I consider it a tax on people who can't do math, but raffle is a different story. There are a limited number of tickets being sold. The arena only held a few thousand people and not everyone was willing to buy a ticket. And obviously someone is guaranteed to win. That being said, I still wasn't expecting to actually win. During a break in the action in the third period, they announced the winning ticket number. I held the ticket in my hand and watched intently as each number read off matched my own. I couldn't believe my luck. I ran up the stands and around the concourse to the designed area, to the designated area behind the press box uh, to collect my prize. Sure enough, there waiting for me was a university representative who checked my ticket, promptly handed over the beautiful sweater. That's what we call hockey jerseys, your sweaters. For only a $2 ticket, I now owned the jersey of our captain and one of our best players. Couldn't wait to get it back to my dorm and tell my roommate. We normally went to games together, but he was probably out with a girl that night. When he finally got back and saw the jersey, he was amazed as well. A few days later, one of us got the idea I should try to get it autographed. Since he was still a student, I knew the format of what his email uh, what his email address would be. So I wrote him a quick note explaining that I was a fellow student. I'd won the jersey the previous weekend's game. And if it wouldn't be too much trouble, I'd love to have him autograph for me. To my delight, he replied within a day and we arranged to meet after practice later that week. I waited outside the locker room as the players filed out. We exchanged our pleasantries. He signed the jersey, and I thanked him. Now I have one of the rarest pieces of sports memorabilia, a game-worn autographed jersey of a player that was still playing. I proudly wore it to home games for the remainder of the season and occasionally elsewhere. However, <laughs> you're waiting for me to get to this. However, whenever I did wear it, I was routinely met with rude remarks, usually from fellow fans in the arena because of the name on the back of the jersey. I would often correct 
the people shiting me by reminding them of who our captain was and to show them some respect. Uh, but as the years passed and the further removed we became from his career, it was harder to defend. Once I became engaged and since married, congratulations, my wife forbade me from wearing it again in public, all because of the way Canadians spell the name pronounced Coburn. The name is spelled, for those who don't have this image in front of them like I do, C-O-C-K-B-U-R-N. Yes, our neighbors to the north pronounce that as Coburn. And that is why I am not allowed to wear it in a public. Once again, greatly enjoy Jersey contest with Will. Love the stories. If you remember the Illinois basketball player, Kofi Coburn, it's spelled the same way. I look, it was always going to be a difficult path for Kofi Coburn to become one of the most popular jerseys sold in the NBA. Probably. Maybe not. I don't know what 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 exactly he was staring at by way of his NBA prospects. But um, when you have that as a last name, that is the Canadian pronunciation. In America down here, yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. <laughs> Can't really get behind that one. But I wanted to shout, uh, shout out Evan because uh, some of these Jersey stories that hopefully we'll get are very unique, very personal and maybe in weird ways, you have reasons that you don't like wearing that jersey uh, anymore. Like there are certain guys who, look, we talked about with Will, the Michael Vick jerseys. Michael Vick jerseys had a rough go for a solid decade, probably. It was like, eh, Michael Vick Falcons jersey. Mm, prob- probably good on that for a, for a little bit. And, you know, I think. Wearing a Michael Vick jersey now is a whole lot different than it was in, let's say, 2008, 2009. But, you know, every jersey needs to have (laughs) proper context and understanding uh, that goes into it. And certainly a hockey sweater with that last name would be received poorly by some who think that you just have a very immature sense of humor. But, yes, I want jersey stories. That's what we want. Let's just call it jersey stories, okay? Jersey stories. We're going to settle at that. Uh, that's going to be probably in the next month or so. Yeah. Next month or so, probably around the, right around the time March Madness. I don't think we're going to do like a bracket style thing. I don't want to have certain stories advance. Everybody's story is great and unique to themselves, but please send me an email. C O G A R A at SaturdayDownSouth.com with your Jersey story, your favorite Jersey story why it means so much to you, why it's significant, something that we can share on these airways. Would love to be able to do that. Quick housekeeping note. I am going to be out of town all of next week. We're only going to have one pod that comes out. That's going to come out on Tuesday. I've got a first-time guest, international guest, actually. Uh, We'll also do the time capsule episode that I've been teasing for a while. been talking about that for a bit, I feel like at least once an episode over the course of the last uh, few weeks, it feels like we're going to go back to 2019, dig into how different the sport was then as we were getting ready to enter the 2020s decade. So only one pod next week. It's going to be okay. We've given you a lot of off-season content already, a lot of these longer episodes. So if you're like, hey, man, maybe you skipped an episode here, an episode there, something like that. Uh, plenty for you to be able to go back and listen to, or you want to get really deep into the archives, go go back in the day and and listen to an adjustment more or something like that as well. If you're just you just need some college football content, so 
uh, one pod next week. Leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast. Follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter, at the SDS pod, at South Down South, at CJ O'Gara, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.